America's headquarters in the nation's capital, welcome to Higher Ed Now, ACTA's podcast on pivotal issues, trends, and leadership in higher education. I'm Doug Spry. Today, my colleague Brian Paul, ACTA's Director of Alumni Advocacy, hosts our program in conversation with Lauren Noble, the founder and executive director of the William F. Buckley Jr. Program at Yale University. It's no secret that America's colleges and universities are facing a troubling decline in viewpoint diversity and the willingness of students to openly express their opinions. Elite institutions like Yale University sadly lead in this trend, with more and more students exercising self-censorship for fear of being attacked or ostracized by their peers. In her role at the helm of the Buckley program and as alumni leader of Fight for Yale's Future, Lauren Noble knows this phenomenon firsthand and is working vigorously to expand political discourse on campus and expose students to often unvoiced views. She seeks to foster open political discussion and intellectual engagement on campus and transform the culture of her alma mater into a haven for free expression. The conversation that follows shows that her efforts and commitment to academic freedom and excellence make her an indispensable ally for all those who are dedicated to promoting genuine intellectual diversity. Lauren Noble, welcome to the Higher Ed Now podcast. It is wonderful to have you with us today. Well, thank you so much, Brian, for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. I, for one, am supremely stoked to have the privilege to interview you, Lauren. Your resume is staggering, to say the least. When I look at your description, an alumna of Yale, founder and executive director of the William F. Buckley Jr. program, someone who has worked in political campaigns, has worked for women's organizations, whose work has appeared in numerous publications online and in print. Where to begin? Well, I want to begin first with getting to know you, Lauren. Tell us a little bit about you. Your bio says so much, but what else would you like our listeners to know about you? Sure. Well, I'm originally from the greater Boston area. I grew up in uh, Lexington and then Concord, um, and I came to Yale as a freshman in uh, the fall of uh, 2000. Seven. I was a history major and graduated in uh, 2011. I then worked on the Romney campaign in uh, Boston. And then in January 2013, I came back to New Haven uh, to work on expanding the Buckley program on a full-time basis. I had started uh, the Buckley program as a student during my senior year. Uh, and I've been, I've been doing that in uh, the little over a decade since. That is incredible. Most students, like myself, spent a lot of college coming to realize what they wanted to do with their lives, or in my case, learning what they ended up not wanting to do with their lives. Mm -hmm. I was on the law school track for the longest time before I saw the light, so to speak, and realized I wanted to do something else. You had a lot of success forming groups, being engaged. What motivated you to do all that you did? What was the driving force behind Lauren Noble? Well, I had a good experience at Yale, but I would say one thing I felt was missing from my Yale experience uh, was, you know, really any significant diversity of uh, thought. You know, there was the Yale Political Union uh, and, you know, there were conservative, you know, groups as part of part of that. Um, but I, I felt that, you know, in the curriculum uh, with regard to uh, the faculty and just in general, this, the speakers that were otherwise uh, brought to campus, that, so- that something was uh, missing. And so that was around my junior year um, that I had started to think, oh, wouldn't it be great if we uh, could start a simple speaker series with the express purpose of bringing intellectual diversity uh, to campus? And in the fall of my senior year, there was this is the fall of 2010, uh, there was actually a seminar on William F. Buckley Jr. in the rise of modern conservatism. And so I'd already been thinking of starting this speaker series, but it was that class that that uh, inspired me to uh, name it for William F. Buckley Jr. Um, you know, obviously he got his uh, big big start with the publication of uh, God and Man at Yale uh, in 1951. Uh, so it made it made a lot of 
uh, since. Uh, and we got we got started uh, with our first events in January 2011. Uh, so we had about a half dozen uh, events that that first semester. It was really just a few of us students in you know a basement planning planning some events and talking about what what we wanted to do with the group and now it's been you know really quite quite amazing uh, to see uh, the growth of the organization over the past decade uh, we're now at 526 student members we call them student fellows so it just started as just a few of us got it that is amazing and you have had the unique experience not only of seeing Yale firsthand, but have also had the opportunity to work with students who are currently at Yale. What was your experience at Yale like as a student? And on top of that, what have you heard from students about their Yale experience today? Sure. Uh, so I had a good experience at Yale. You know, during my four years on campus, I certainly had uh, a number of professors whose uh, classes I uh, enjoyed and I got a lot out of. I was a history major. You know, one thing that I think I see as, as being different today than when I was an undergraduate is the prevalence of self-censorship by you know students so uh, of you know the 526 students i mentioned who are involved in the buckley program now you know we hear from a good number of them that there's you know really this culture of self censorship that you know people hold back what they want to say in both in the classroom and on campus generally because they're concerned uh, about the reaction of their peers and classmates and uh, professors. Uh, so I think that that's one way in which things are a little bit different now. And, you know, I certainly find that trend uh, to be something that we should all be very concerned about. Of course, it's not simply this problem isn't unique to Yale. The Buckley program does a national survey every year, and we've been doing that survey since uh, 2015. And the results we got back this year point to some really alarming trends. We had 63% of students nationwide uh, report that they often feel intimidated uh, from expressing a viewpoint in class because it differs from their peers. And that's the highest reading that we've seen in the eight years we've been doing this survey. So nationwide, things seem to be headed in the wrong direction. You know, while we, we weren't doing that survey when I was a student, I, you know, I, I suspect the numbers were a, a lot lower just based on the trend and my own uh, experience. Indeed, it is an alarming trend, something that other scholars and researchers have observed. The Buckley program did release its eighth annual college student survey, like you mentioned, just recently in October. The results are truly concerning. In the main areas, such as on free speech, the number in favor of using violence to stop speech jumped from five points to 41% in 2022. For the first time in the survey's history, a plurality 48% versus 44% disagree that hate speech is protected by the First Amendment. A record 63%, reading straight from your summary report here, of students reported being intimidated and in sharing an opinion that differed from their peers. That is perhaps one of the more revelatory parts of these kind of surveys, is that it's less coming from faculty, though certainly faculty can play a part in this self-censorship, it's more so that students feel pressure from their peers to self-censor lest they be condemned or criticized by their peers. How have students involved with the Buckley program expressed this fear or this self-censorship to you? What have they said about it? Well, they say that there's really a culture of shaming on campus. And I think, I think, you know, a lot, a lot report uh, feeling that they can't express even viewpoints that are considered centrist, moderate viewpoints. I think increasingly uh, we, we get students across the political spectrum. It's not just conservative students saying that they feel that they can't voice their opinion in class or on campus without a significant 
backlash. It, it's students from across the political spectrum. And so that's uh, certainly something that we've, we've seen increasingly over the past five, six years. Uh, it's a trend that we're uh, watching closely. I mean, but you can also watch it play out in the news too at Yale. So there was, uh, there have been a couple incidents at the Yale Law School alone in the past year. Uh, about a year ago in the fall of 2021, uh, there was a Native American law student who had written a party invitation to a, a Constitution Day party. The party was co-hosted by the Native American Law Students Association and the Federalist Society. Uh, and some students were a Offended, you know, by how he had worded uh, the email, and he was brought into the dean's office, and they pressured him to apologize and, and threatened him with professional consequences if he didn't apologize. And actually, they they even uh, Yale administrators had uh, pre-drafted an apology letter from him, which 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 he he refused to uh, sign. Um, so I, I think, you know, there's the high profile incidents that, that you hear about like that, but then there's just the sort of everyday interactions, which you don't hear about uh, as, as much sometimes. I mean, we see it in the survey data, but, you know, students choose choose not to speak up or, you know, I hear from a lot of students that they, they pick their spots. So, you know, there might be certain situations in certain classes where they really don't feel comfortable uh, speaking freely, but perhaps at a Buckley program event or some somewhere else that they do feel more comfortable speaking up and really sharing their viewpoints. Uh, so it, it's certainly a really concerning trend. And I think more needs to be done at Yale and nationwide to combat this. Understandable, truly astounding. Yale has been in the news a lot as of late. I mean, just recently, the Yale Law School announced that they would pull out from the U.S. News and World Report as far as their the, the reports of accounting of or rankings for law schools. Other schools like Harvard, even recently Michigan State, have followed suit. You mentioned the Yale Law School experiencing issues of viewpoint diversity and free expression as well. I have to ask, though, and this is a a question I, I feel like I already know the answer to, but why should we care about what's happening at Yale? Obviously, Yale is considered by many to be the premier American university next to Harvard and other universities in the Ivy League, but it is arguably one isolated university. Why, why should we care about what's happening at Yale? That's a really important question. And, you know, there's certainly now, nowadays, there's a, you know, strain of pundits and intellectuals and, and even in even Yale alumni who think that Yale is lost to, to wokeness, to cancel culture, to, you know, the suffocating uh, orthodoxy that makes real learning uh, impossible. As you said, the 14 federal judges have said as much in their uh, announcement that they're not going to hire Yale law clerks. And so there's certainly a lot of concerning uh, developments here. But the fact of the matter is the future leaders of this country are uh, being shaped by Yale and institutions like it. Those future leaders, whether in the private sector, whether they're CEOs or whether they're in a government, senators, presidents, they are passing through Yale's classrooms and uh, courtyards. And so what they learn at Yale and how they're shaped at Yale isn't going to stay at Yale. Uh, what, what happens on campus doesn't stay on campus. It's you know, something that you, you, you often hear said, but I think it's especially true at a place like Yale, which does set some you know, trends in higher education. Uh, you mentioned the announcement about the uh, Yale no longer participating in the U.S. News and World Report rankings. Well, Yale, Yale was the first institution to uh, make that big announcement and other institutions uh, followed suit. So uh, Yale is, is certainly a, a leader in uh, the higher education space, uh, but its graduates are leaders who, who are having and going to have a big impact on this, this country's future. So I think that even though there's a lot to be concerned about with uh, what's what's happened at, at Yale, we really need to fight for Yale's future. And, and those students are certainly worth fighting for. Definitely. 
This is nothing new. I see behind you on your desk a copy of William F. Buckley Jr.'s classic God and Man at Yale. You append an article for the National Review titled God and Woman at Yale. This is actually something you wrote just toward the end of your Yale graduation in 2011 and how you undertook one of the easiest fundraising campaigns ever you wrote, raising money for a student organized conference promoting women leaders at Yale. You wrote this at the time when you were a Yale graduate and were were the business chair of the Women's Leadership Initiative at Yale. You took that language clearly from Buckley's book. And I wonder from your perspective, how has what Buckley observed way back then, continued or is seen today at Yale? Well, Buckley took on the establishment in his time, uh, and he bemoaned the climate. He bemoaned the you know orthodoxy that uh, existed at Yale. I, I think things over the past 70 years have, have gotten a lot uh, worse uh, since, since Buckley's time uh, in terms of... Uh, intellectual orthodoxy and uh, groupthink on campus, that uh, these are real challenges. But I mean, certainly Yale has also changed in you know, positive ways too. You know, in Buckley's time, there were no women undergraduates. And so the first women were admitted to Yale in the 1960s. Um, but there, there's other ways in which uh, the campus has you know, changed in, and it goes beyond in intellectual uh, academic factors, although the you know curriculum has also changed since Buckley's time. But even from when I was a student, one big change I was thinking about recently is tuition room and board at Yale is now $80,700. When I was, wow. when I entered as a freshman, it was just over $43,000. So that wasn't that long ago. That was that was 15 years ago. And so in 15 years, tuition room and board at Yale has almost doubled. That's really a remarkable thing. You know, if there was some some other good good or service that uh, increased in price that that much, we would be certainly talking about it a lot. So yeah, there's there's many ways in which um, the Yale of Buckley's time is a lot different from from our time. Right. How did you manage to make your way through Yale with those kind of costs? <laughs> my my parents were certainly uh, very supportive of of me, and you know Yale Yale has really good financial you know aid, and you know that's that's something that has I'm sure improved significantly since Buckley's time. But the reality is, for many many families, you know. 80 something thousand dollars is just a lot of money. Um, and, and like I said, Yale's a trend setter. So when, when you're, you know, elite institutions, when, you know, the costs keep going up and going up, I think, you know, it, it's going to keep happening elsewhere too. Uh, so again, what, you know, what happens at Yale does not, does not stay at Yale. And that's, and that's true, I think on many, many levels. And hopefully it doesn't descend into the similar kind of degradation as a Las Vegas that holds that very line of what happens there stays there. (laughs) Intellectually, though, sadly, it does seem that there has been that degradation insofar as viewpoint diversity and free expression are concerned. ACTA is very much invested in that area of interest, not to mention on aspects of spending and academic excellence that you were referring to. But I would like to take it specifically to the Buckley program now. We've talked a little bit about the Yale climate and some elements around that. Let's bring it back to the Buckley program that you are leading here. How is the Buckley program striving to correct course, as it were, at Yale University? Well, the Buckley program is just thriving um, right now. Like I mentioned before, we have now a record level of student members. We have 526 student fellows now, and that's about 8% of the Yale undergraduate student body. So it really is a significant presence among these students. Uh, In terms of our programming, uh, we have usually at least one event uh, a week during the academic year. Sometimes we have uh, multiple uh, events. 
And these range from uh, multi-day seminars to firing line debates where, you know, students can hear different points of view, engage with one, one another in a civil and reasonable uh, fashion, and, you know, ho- hopefully uh, learn, learn something uh, from it. Uh, we have an annual conference every year. Uh, one of my favorite uh, events that we have is a uh, annual uh, disinvitation dinner. Uh, where we invite a, a speaker who has been uh, disinvited or disrupted, typically another, another campus, although now this you know trend of disinvitation disruption is ever expanding, but you know we, we unfortunately, we, yes. Yeah, we invite them to share their views with you know an audience that's not too too afraid to hear those views. Um, and so that's always a, a fun event. We had Barry Weiss, uh, earlier this year in uh, May, and, and she was terrific. And you know, one of the things that she says uh, in uh, a lot in 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 number of writing uh, by her that I've seen is you know, we, we got we got here with uh, cowardice. We we get out with courage, uh, and so that's one of the things that I think that the Buckley program is really trying to do to equip students not only with you know different points of view that they might not otherwise encounter in the classroom and, and on campus. And we certainly do that, uh, but also to, to really equip them with um, the tools that they, that they need and, you know, the confidence to, you know, speak freely elsewhere. And so that's a, a growing part of the work that we do. You know, we also fund internships for students every year at various publications uh, in, you know, think tanks. So internships that are otherwise not uh, funded. Those have been uh, great opportunities for students. Uh, we've had uh, actually a, a number of students intern at the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, among others. So that's certainly uh, an area of interest for uh, students. Well, the Buckley program is certainly living up to its designation as an oasis of excellence, as ACTA has so designated it, which, as we say on our website, this type of program, an oasis of excellence, is one that shares a commitment to educating students for informed citizenship in a free society by maintaining the highest academic standards and introducing students to the best of the foundational arts and sciences, teaching American heritage, and ensuring free inquiry into a range of intellectual viewpoints. So I commend you for living up to that because just from your, from your description, it sounds like you really are striving to do that. But now I have to, I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a moment because I I have to ask, clearly the Buckley program bearing the name of William F. Buckley Jr. shares perhaps a certain, shall we say, ideological standpoint or perhaps a, a bent as it were. How would you respond to someone who questions whether the Buckley program is truly a place of viewpoint diversity where it bears the name of a prominent conservative intellectual? Well, I think just I would encourage people with that point to to really look at the programs that we host. Uh, we we host uh, firing line debates where you know there'll be a conservative speaker and and a liberal speaker. Um, so there we, we we very often in our programs you know incorporate different sides of an issue, and I think that that's uh, a very a very important thing. But I also think if you look at the uh, students who joined the Buckley program, it's, it's really quite a range of uh, political views uh, that get involved. You know, we, we'll do sort of informal surveys of our student fellows every, every once in a while. And the last one we did showed uh, something like 30% of uh, students uh, who are student fellows in, in Buckley self-identify as moderate politically, you know, something like 18% identified as being progressive. Of course, for, you know, an organization named for William F. Buckley is going to, you know, have a a sizable contingent of, you know, conservative uh, students who are involved, libertarian leaning uh, students. Those numbers, I think, libertarian and conservative students combined, it's probably something like 40 something percent. Um, and so, yeah, it's a sizable contingent for sure, but we were very welcoming to different points of, of view because this problem of self-censorship, remember, it's not just conservative students who are experiencing this on campus. We've had, I would say over the past 
three, four, five years, more and more moderate and progressive students joining the Buckley program because they feel that it's the space that they can engage in a open discussion. And the other thing I would point to is we do a faculty prize. Uh, so we just launched this initiative last year, and it's called the Luxe Veritas Faculty Prize. It's a $10,000 award for a professor at Yale who you know really fosters intellectual diversity and robust debate in the classroom and on campus and does so in a way that inspires others, be it the students and, and, and other faculty members. We got a great response to that initiative. The professor who got the award was nominated by a, n- a number of students. I mean, we received 21 different faculty members across Yale and different departments were nominated for this award. And then a committee of judges went through the nominations and selected the winner. And, and the professor who won this award, he's not a political conservative, but you know he, he really uh, believes in these ideals of open, robust debate and discussion. So I think those, those initiatives and, and that kind of outreach is very, very important. And let's be honest, a place like the Buckley Program definitely stands out in an atmosphere like Yale University. So the fact that you are there to round out the conversation in an arguably more liberal, progressive environment is what the point is, that it's important at a university to have places where multiple voices can be heard and the facilitation of discussion among numerous points of view. You seem to be living up to that no less than in your efforts to provide students with copies of the Woodward Report. Tell us a little more about your efforts there. Why? Well, first of all, tell us about what the Woodward Report is and about your efforts at the Buckley Program to make it accessible and available to students. Sure. So the Woodward Report is Yale's official uh, free speech policy. It was published in the 1970s, 1974 to be precise. And it was shortly thereafter adopted as Yale's official free speech policy. And, you know, it's a very strong statement in support of free speech on campus. The Woodward Report calls for uh, the right to think the unthinkable, discuss the unmentionable, and challenge the unchallengeable. It really gets, blended turn of phrase there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it really gets to the heart of, you know, what the mission and purpose of an institution like Yale is. Uh, and so, but, you know, man, many, many, many students and alumni and faculty have felt that in recent years, Yale has not always lived up to those principles. There was the infamous incident in 2015 where students got upset over an email about Halloween costumes. There's been the more recent issues at the Yale Law School. I mentioned the student being pressured to apologize. In in March of this year, there was also a panel, a bipartisan panel at the law school on free speech that was disrupted by about 100 students. Yeah. And the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education gave Yale its Lifetime Censorship Award this year. And in its most recent ranking of schools for free speech, Yale fell to the 198th spot out of just over, I think it was 202 or 203 schools. So Yale is is really seen as struggling in terms of these issues of free speech on campus. And so there are a number of steps that we would like to see Yale take to address what's happening on campus and really improve the climate. One of the significant ways that we've identified where Yale has fallen short is the Woodward Report calls for education of students in the value of free expression. That's right there in the report. But unfortunately, the the Woodward Report, a lot of students don't know what it is. Um, And so we felt it would be important to really get this in front of students as they're entering Yale and and starting out on their college career. So this fall, we distributed just shy of 1,600 copies of the Woodward Report to freshmen. We have this booklet that we had commissioned 
back in 2016 called Campus Speech in Crisis, What the Yale Experience Can Teach America. And it includes both the Woodward Report, uh, the Chicago Principles, and some commentary about those. So I think it's an important document that students are aware of and understand and, and really take to heart. I love reading this booklet. I took the liberty to read Campus Speech in Crisis in preparation for this. I would highly recommend it to our listeners. Feel free to go online and pick up a copy of Campus Speech in Crisis, What the Yale Experience Can Teach America. Buy it online and feel free to reach out to our friends at the Buckley Program for a copy or even ACTA for a copy. We have plenty in our uh, back storage room that we are happy to share with folks because it really is an important read. To put it into context as well, historical context, the Woodward Report preceded the Chicago Principles. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people seem to know about the Chicago Principles now, that those appeared in 2014. Uh, The Calvin Report on institutional neutrality, which also came out of Chicago, appeared in 1967. So even before the Woodward Report and the Chicago Principles, it's fascinating how these reports came out at specific times, of course, in the case of the Calvin Committee Report and the Woodward Report, in the midst of and at the end of great political social tumult in the United States and abroad with the war in Vietnam, with the sexual revolution, with protests on and off campus, so much that led to the creation of these vital documents. And the Woodward Report certainly falls in that camp of groundbreaking foundational documents, which while they don't necessarily say anything that is not appreciated by many in higher education or in our society, to actually articulate them in written form allows us a solid reference point for when we start to lose our bearings to come back to what truly matters in higher ed. Right. And I think comparing the Woodward Report and the Chicago Principles, I think that there's a very important lesson there. The Chicago Principles are less than a a decade old, whereas the Woodward Report is almost 50 years old. And, you know, they're both sound free speech principles, but you Chicago is seen as the real leader on, you know, free speech issues in this country, and rightfully so, whereas Yale is made fun of on the Simpsons. <laughs> Anything uh, but. <laughs> and and so it, it it really, I think, underscores the point that having sound principles and good and good robust principles in, in support of free speech is really important, but it's not enough. These institutions need to live up to those principles, even when it might be difficult or unpopular to do so. So my hope is that uh, Yale really takes some steps to reaffirm with more than just lip service, really reaffirm and implement the very good principles behind the Woodward Report. Right in line with what ACTA has been striving to do as well with our Campus Freedom Initiative and the launch of our new gold standard for freedom of expression. It was something that we are striving to see implemented at a number of universities, and I would hope that Yale would follow suit with other universities such as UNC and the University of Texas system that have all recently adopted these statements in one form or another. Hopefully Yale, which technically already has the Woodward Report as part of its policies, will then just reinforce it to recommit to the principles there. And you you and I both are directly involved in efforts on and off campus to make that happen, which is where I would love to discuss further your involvement with the rising alumni movement. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention this. In my role here at ACTA as Director of Alumni Advocacy, I work very closely with a number of people in this movement, yourself included, Lauren. It's been a real pleasure to work with you in this so far. Tell us a little more about your involvement in the National Alumni Movement. Sure, yeah. I've organized a group called Fight for Yale's Future. Uh, It's an initiative of the Buckley program, really pushing and trying to unite alumni and, and push for change around these 
issues that we've been talking about related to institutional reform. So there are, you know, several, several areas we feel that Yale needs to improve in. We've talked a lot about free inquiry already. That's obviously a big one for Fight for Yale's future, really actually living up to the Woodward principles. There have been a lot of concerning developments there. You know, we, we talked about the law school incident and, you know, in the aftermath, well, multiple law school incidents. And in, in, in the aftermath of those, Yale and Yale Law have said, have had a lot of good rhetoric, I would say, on the, on the topic of free speech. But some of the actions taken have been I think, a step in the wrong direction. For instance, the Yale Law School has now implemented a policy banning surreptitious recordings, but it was a recording that that student who was being pressured, he, he recorded that interaction with <laughs> the administrators pressuring him. And had he not recorded that, you know, Yale backtracked once that was releasing, you know, of course, he's not going to be punished for his protected speech. But if he hadn't recorded that, you know, I don't know what what would have happened. So that change is concerning in the sense that it seems like less designed to protect free speech on campus and more so designed to protect administrators who run afoul of those principles from accountability. And there's several other areas that Fight for Yale's future is focused on. So whether it's the ballooning bureaucracy, there are a lot of concerns about that, you know, that alumni and others and even the faculty are concerned about this. There was a big report by the faculty senate at Yale expressing uh, concerns about the growth in administrative bloat at Yale. But what really led to the creation of Fight for Yale's future were a lot of concerns about governance and transparency at Yale. So since 2016, the Buckley program has been pushing for reform of the alumni fellow election at Yale. And hmm. what that is, is every year alumni are asked to vote for one of the trustees who serves on the Yale Corporation, which is Yale's board of trustees. And as an alum, you would get your ballot and it would just contain you know, a picture of the person and a short bio, and you wouldn't get any information about what does this candidate stand for? You know, Are they concerned about free speech on campus? What issues motivate them? What are they going to be really focusing on as a trustee? And so in 2016 and 2017, you know, we started to call on the Yale administration to release some more information so alumni could actually make an informed choice in this annual election. And that unfortunately, those calls fell on deaf ears. So in 2015, we started backing petition candidates who were running for uh, the Yale, Yale Corporation, often really focused on free speech on campus, but also transparency. The Yale Corporation embargoes its minutes for over 50 years. So there, there were a number of, and really just the, the concept of having some information about who you're being asked to vote for in this election. And no petition candidate had made the ballot since 2002 until in 2020, uh, we were successful in getting an alum on the ballot. That alum lost the alumni fellow election, which is, you know, it happens. But what, what happened next was even more unfortunate. Yale just completely eliminated this petition avenue to get on the ballot for the Yale Corporation. And so, you know, after that, we had spent, you know, several years kind of, you know, gathering and uniting alumni to care about all these, all these issues of institutional reform and the path that, that we thought could make a difference on that front was taken away from us. So, but, you know, it led to this Fight for Yale's Future initiative, which has tried to carry forward those important efforts, because that's what the work the work that the Buckley program does with students is very, very important, but the institution at which you know, these students are being educated, there's a number of concerning factors there that my hope is that our efforts with Fight for Yale can help to address. This is fantastic, Lauren, and it's just awe-inspiring to hear about alumni rising, not only 
at Yale, but across the nation. Would you say in the case of Yale that it has been a swelling tide of of a movement from alumni coming out of the woodwork and rallying together? Has it been more of a steady stream that has grown with time? What has been the experience at Yale with alumni rising? Most recently, I would say it's been a steady stream, but there have been, I think, big moments you know, over the past five, six years where alumni have really woken up and, and started to pay attention and be concerned about what's happening on campus. So, you know, I mentioned the big incident related to an email about Halloween costumes back in 2015. I remember around then I started to hear increasingly from alumni who were concerned with the direction of Yale. And then, you know, there've been smaller incidents along the way, but then another big, a big moment was when Yale eliminated this petition process for right. the Yale Corporation, you know, I think a lot of alumni felt disenfranchised by that move. And so we've gotten a very positive response to our efforts in this area. Right now, there's a petition over at fightforyale.com, which calls on the Yale administration to take some specific steps to reaffirm its commitment to the Woodward Report. So that's been our focus over the past couple of months. But yeah, we've seen very, very positive interest from alumni. I remember signing that petition not too long ago. I would invite our listeners to check out the petition there. It can be found on the Buckley Program's website, yes? It's at fightforyale.com. There's a link to it on the homepage, so I would encourage your listeners to check it out. Yeah, and I'm no Yale alumnus by any stretch of the imagination, and I was able to sign the petition. So it's open to anyone who cares about the nature of higher ed, right? Yep, anyone, because I mean, most of our signers naturally are Yale alumni, or you know, we've even had a good number of uh, students and faculty sign. So it's not just alumni who are concerned with what's happening. And you are not alone in this fight. That's what's so beautiful. And I would hope our listeners and others out there who are concerned about these issues realize they are not alone. There are others out there who are engaged in fighting for free expression, academic freedom, and viewpoint diversity on college and university campuses. A big partner ACTA has in this fight is the Alumni Free Speech Alliance. And I understand that Fight for Yale's Future is a key part of that Alliance. And Lauren, you yourself are on the board of the Alliance, are you not? Yep, that's correct. I am. Yep. And what has your experience been like working with alumni from other universities? What kind of insight have you gleaned from your partners in this movement? Well, it does seem like there's been a a good trend in, in terms of, you know, more and more alumni being interested in what's happening on a campus. Now, over the years, I've gotten a number of different inquiries from you know, faculty, students, alumni asking, you know, oh, I see what you're doing with the Buckley program. I like it. You know, how could I do something similar on my campus? But I would say over the past six months, those sorts of inquiries have really increased in number. So that's something that I'm very glad to see because even, even if we're successful in solving all of the challenges at Yale, uh, this is a big, a big country with a lot of different colleges and universities that are facing real challenges in terms of intellectual freedom on campus. I'm delighted to see that alumni are stepping up and being engaged and active on these issues. And, and one thing I appreciate, especially about the mission of the Alumni Free Speech Alliance, is it's concerned with both freedom of speech, but also viewpoint diversity. And in my mind, those two things go hand in hand. You know, I think advocating for free speech on its own terms is uh, certainly quite important, but where, where you really need free speech is when you have diverse viewpoints. And I think that we have a problem both on campus and you know, in this country more, more broadly with, you know, we need to develop a more robust free speech culture. And I think intellectual diversity, viewpoint diversity, whatever term you, you want to use, is an essential component to solving that challenge. So I'm very glad to see that. Alumni have been concerned for years now from 
your experience at Yale to other universities throughout the country, they have been driving to figure out how to best deal with the growing illiberalism that is plaguing our universities. Stuart Taylor Jr. and Edward Yingling, also part of the Alumni Free Speech Alliance, in fact, the co-founders of it, penned the op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that took flight to greater heights than even they comprehended. And in this very op-ed that they penned, they mention how they believe that alumni are really the front line of defense or, in effect, the last hope for universities. If universities are to truly preserve and even restore their primary mission of seeking truth in a context of free expression, academic freedom and viewpoint diversity, alumni must rise to the occasion. What would you tell alumni from Yale or elsewhere who are concerned but don't really know what to do? What would be your message to them, Lauren? Well, I think they should reach out to the Alumni Free Speech Alliance or you know any of the member groups who, who they observe as doing things that they appreciate and are making a difference. You know, every every campus I think is different. You know, sometimes we've been asked, would you, you know, franchise the Buckley program? But I think that the Yale environment is different than some other campuses. And so I think alumni really do have a valuable and important role to play. As we discussed earlier, our national survey shows that a record level of students are uncomfortable voicing their viewpoints in class. I mean, it was 63% this year. I think that we've reached a point that we really need to do something about this trend. And I think you know, my, my advice would be, you, know, you, you can start small and really build from there. Uh, you know, the Buckley program didn't get to where it is now overnight. You know, we started with a half dozen events uh, in that first semester, and there were just a few of us students at the time. And so what started off small has you know, really blossomed into something meaningful and significant. So I, I would say alumni should do what they can to make their campuses have better intellectual climates. I think that's that's very important. And there's a lot that can be done when people unite together around a cause. You know, I'm the leader of the Buckley program, but we had just around 1,100 donors last year in, in, in 2021. So I'm not doing this alone. And I think alumni will find that there are many fellow alumni who will support them and, and want to help in some way or another, whether it's time or you know resources or connections. So there's a lot of work to do, but I feel optimistic uh, when I see people stepping up. This is a rolling tide that is picking up speed. The Buckley program started in 2011. Fight for Yale's future came thereafter. Stuart Taylor Jr. and Edward Yingling, along with others, founded the Alumni Free Speech Alliance. And in 2021, after they posted or published their Wall Street Journal op-ed, hundreds of people started coming out of the woodwork to learn more and to want to join the movement. And here we are a year later, and it's fantastic to see where the Buckley program is, where the alumni movement is. Alumni are rising. Students are starting to feel through programs like the Buckley program that they can pursue truth in an environment that allows for free expression and viewpoint diversity. So just huge kudos to you, Lauren, and your work on this front. Thank you so much. And thank you, you know, for all that ACTA does in this area as well. We certainly appreciate it. Absolutely. As we wrap up here soon, I just have to ask quickly, you are someone who has written extensively, and I am amazed at how much you have written and taking time to write. You are someone who is clearly motivated. And is there a particular experience or story that comes to mind from your life about why you are so motivated and care so much about Yale and this movement? Well, look, I got a great deal out of my Yale experience, but you know, things are taking an alarming turn at both Yale and in other institutions. And when I see the numbers of you know, 63% of students who feel intimidated from sharing their points of view in class, I want to do something about that. What's happening at Yale really matters for the 
country, the future leaders of this country, whether they're in the private sector or in government, are being shaped by institutions like Yale. And you know, on a positive note, as we've continued to grow the Buckley program, the student demand has really been there. And that's something that's very motivating to me as we've expanded what we've done on campus. We've now grown to uh, 526 student members, plus there's many more young alumni beyond that. We had about 1,100 supporters last year. So those things really keep me motivated that, yes, there is a real problem, but, but there's something that we can do to address this problem. As the mother of a young daughter, you know, I'm concerned about what higher education is going to look like in the decades to come. I think we need to do something about it now, not just for higher ed, but for the country more broadly. I, for one, am so grateful that someone like yourself is involved in this movement, Lauren. Lauren Noble, executive director and founder of the Buckley Program at Yale University, founder, leader of the Fight for Yale's Future, board member of the Alumni Free Speech Alliance, alumni rising across the country, helping us remember to fight for the right to think the unthinkable, discuss the unmentionable, and challenge the unchallengeable. Laura Noble, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. Higher Ed Now is a production of the American Council of Trustees and Alumni in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work and the pivotal issues of higher education, visit goacta.org, or you can email us at info at goacta.org. If you enjoy Higher Ed Now, you can subscribe and leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. I'm Doug Spry. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, take care of yourselves, and we'll share more episodes with you soon.